This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm your host, Courtney Ballastier, and I'm excited to bring you this first episode of season two. I have some wonderful conversations coming up that I'm excited to share with you, and I'm going to kick things off here with Nick Riggle. Nick is a writer, skater, and philosophy professor. His first book, On Being Awesome, A Unified Theory of How Not to Suck, comes out with Penguin Books on September 19th. He teaches philosophy at the University of San Diego, and he's currently writing a novel about a beard and a philosophy book about YOLO. I've known Nick for years. My husband is also a philosophy professor, and they got their PhDs together. And it's so exciting that I get to talk to him now about these projects that I've been hearing about and watching him work on for so long. We also talk about writing as refuge from the horrors of the academic job market, the difficulty of writing clearly, especially when you're trying to translate a topic like philosophy, and the importance of always staying in touch with the value of your work. It really was a a short series of people saying, keep doing this to me, that really pushed me in, in the direction of writing a whole book about this. I want you to start by describing to people, you know, what what your theory of of awesomeness is, this the suckiness and awesomeness taxonomy that you that you lay out in the opening pages of the book. Right. So this book is um presents a theory of what it is to be awesome and what it is to suck that um I argue is, you know, sort of latent in our use of these terms um or implicit in them. And um and, you know, I, I come up with a view about what it is to be awesome that uh, might not be what you expect when you, you know, when you pick up the book. Um, but I argue that awesome on the contemporary tongue doesn't just mean awe-inspiring, um, although it can still mean that, of course. I argue that it has a, a new kind of social meaning, that awesome and sucks are used in a distinctive social way. And uh, to be awesome, in short, is to be good at creating social openings. And a social opening is a way of um, uh, expressing yourself in a manner that um, inspires others to express themselves in a way that creates a kind of mutually appreciative community of individuals. So it's kind of a lot of words, but... No, and that was super fascinating. And and I think, um, you know, I think you're right. I think a lot of folks might come into it kind of wondering like oh is this just is this like a a novel thing like what is the like what are we getting at and and it really does make a kind of profound like social observation yeah i hope i hope people see that in the work i mean i i wanted to as it were draw people in with a discussion of this word that everyone uses or these two words and, and in fact actually a whole taxonomy of words as you as you mentioned because it's not just awesome and sucks but it's being down, being game, being chill, being wag, being just simply sucky, and so on and so forth, among other words. I wanted to sort of draw people in to like a, a sort of evaluative universe with a discussion of these terms, and then draw their attention to uh, things that are happening in our culture that um, I think maybe we should be paying more attention to, 
um, not just in culture, but in ourselves and in our daily lives and in the ways we act and interact with, with our fellow citizens. One thing that I loved and was excited to talk to you about, too, is that just the very nature of the book uh, lends itself so nicely to a conversation about writing because it's so much about the power of language and the the ability of language to kind of create its own different sort of like ecosystems that it like it kind of makes us live in. Yeah, I mean, it was it's it was a challenge in some ways, a challenge to write, and in other ways, like um, I mean, in general, it was a total pleasure to write this book, but it had its own unique challenges uh, relating to. Um, I think really just the nature of philosophy and um, the attempt to communicate philosophical ideas, actually original philosophical ideas in this case, to a really big audience, you know, a very variegated and dynamic and complicated audience, which is like the general public, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I found ways to make the reading uh, fun and engaging, and I want you to smile and laugh, but I also didn't want to pull any philosophical punches, and I wanted to kind of, you know, build a theory. I mean, really just do theory-building stuff, straight philosophy. And how did you approach that in terms of the writing? You know, one thing that struck me very early on in reading was how I just thought, like, shit, it must have taken so long to write this clearly. Like, it's so, it's so clearly explained. And I feel like I know any time that I have writing that ends up that way, it's the result of like 25 drafts of just like nonsense that I have to like finally get so frustrated with myself and just be like, it's just this. And then I explain it. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, no, it's that. Yeah, right. (laughs) Totally. Um, Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't easy. Like it wasn't. You know, I, I, this book was kind of like um, my, my saving grace when I was on the job market. Um, whenever I, it's a really, um, difficult thing to do, to do, to go on the academic job. Market. Yeah. Let's maybe explain to people who might not be aware. Um, cause yeah. I am intimately aware obviously, but the academic job market is a, is an intense like pressure cooker situation. Yeah. So, I mean, so basically, um, every year, um, you know, everyone who's applying for a philosophy job applies at the same time. Um, they all go through the same process and, um, it's really intense. I mean, you have to submit this very detailed application with a lengthy and, um, you know, excellent writing sample, letters of recommendation, sample syllabi, your CV, uh, you know, ideally you'd have some publications and, and among other things. And you submit that to, you know, maybe a hundred schools and maybe more, often more, um, and um, you hope that you get like an interview at one of them. And then, you know, you have to go through this like intense like interview with professors grilling you about your work and your teaching. I mean, and, like days long interviews too. Like if you, you know, if you get to that point, it's like. Yeah. And then the final stage would be like, ideally you'd get a fly out somewhere. Someone would want to invite you to the campus to see how you, you know, are on campus. And then that's like a, that can be a two or three day long affair and then you might not get a job after all of that it's hundreds of pages of work you're traveling around the world you're um you're being interviewed by many many people um and you know over this is a process that can take you know six months and then you might not get a job and so when you're academics talk about being on the market which um you know 
is a is a sort of fear inducing phrase for everyone um, because of because of the process I described, and so um, it helps to somehow stay in touch with the value of what you're doing, right? So trying to get a job in academic philosophy and the very process of trying to get a job is enough to suck the life right out of you. And it helps to have something that you're doing in your life to kind of maintain your sort of vision of like why you're doing this and why it matters and why you're the right person to be, you know, working so hard to do it. And, uh, I started working on this book right when I finished my dissertation. So right when I started to go on the market and, um, and, uh, it was just one of these projects where every time I brought it up at a party or to a friend or uh, over a dinner, people had ideas. It didn't matter if they were philosophers or, or even college educated. They just had cool things to say about their, their take on the value of awesomeness or, you know, the disvalue of suckiness or, whatever about killjoys and blowhards and people who are down or people who suck, et cetera. Do you um, remember like when, like where the actual idea came from? Yeah, it was kind of a, um, it was actually a mix of, it was a mix of things. Actually, I kind of came at sucks thinking about suckiness and awesomeness, uh, independently and then realized that even in my own idiolect, they're, they're antonyms and that I should be thinking about them together. Um, it started with suckiness, actually. Uh, as you well know, my wife and I, Brett, um, we love to socialize. And in, in, in New York, we would have lots of parties and like be going out a lot and um, and uh, having lots of people over to our house for dinners and stuff like that. And um, we sort of cultivated this sense that, like, in social context, certain individuals, sometimes friends, like just kind of sucked or did something sucky. And it wasn't, we were, you know, we sort of half jokingly were like, you know, that's a distinctive thing to do. And it's sort of, what is that exactly? And like, why does it feel so bad when someone like burns you? And um, so she and I were kind of like, you know, had this recurring conversation about, about what suckiness was. But um, in a, in a, like I said, um, around this, around this, uh, t- the time that I finished my dissertation, um, I got really lucky because I started thinking about um, suckiness, and I had sort of some ideas about what you know what it was. And um, at the same time, Aaron James was visiting NYU. Aaron James is a um, a really excellent philosopher and um, an author who has a few books out with Doubleday. Um, the latest is this really great book, um, Surfing with Sartre, um, where he extracts a philosophy of, um, as, as it were, of life from surf culture and then pits it against other other philosophies like existentialism and stoicism. But he had written, uh, he had recently come out with uh, a book when he was visiting NYU, this was 2013, I think, um, called Assholes of Theory. And it was totally in the same vein as as what I was thinking, I didn't even know if I had a book, but I just had these, these ideas about suckiness. And um, I asked him since he was visiting NYU, if he would uh, go out to lunch with me and talk about some of these ideas I had. And so we had this really great lunch um, near NYU. And I think we talked for a couple hours and, um, you know, he was convinced that my ideas had legs and that I should pursue them and stuff. So That's so important at the early stage of the process to just have like, I mean, I know there's also the one on the one hand, 
the resistance to rely too much on external validation, but sometimes at the right time, you just need like the right voice to be like, keep doing this. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was, it really was, um, you know, a a short series of people saying, keep doing this to me. Um, that really like, that really pushed me in, in the direction of writing a whole book about this. Um, I think, you know, early on I sent, you know, drafts of, of an, of a sort of really sketchy essay that I had written, um, about suckiness and awesomeness and, um, to some friends and they were like, this is great. Like, yeah. And they had ideas and it just kind of reaffirmed that like, okay, this, I'm doing something here that I find really rewarding that I can talk to people like anyone about. And, uh, that's gotta be good. Like, like that's gotta be good. What I'm doing has to be good. Even if like, don't recognize it in some sense, it's gotta be good. What I love about what you just explained is that from it starting with suckiness and then having read, you know, the theories that you eventually develop, it's like you were, you were like starting with suckiness is kind of coming at it from like a shutting down of a social opening perspective. And then like, but if you're, if you flip it on its head and you're like, but awesomeness, then it like turns it into like a more generative thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It was, it wasn't long before I realized, wow. Um, as I'm thinking through what it means to suck as a person um, or to do a sucky thing, I'm realizing like even in my own idiolect, awesome is kind of can be used to pick out the, the opposite of that, as it were. Um, and then once I notice that I see people using awesome and sucks as antonyms all the time, I even a journal article, uh, an article, sorry, um, by a journalist who I think I quoted it in the book, but, um, who just says, you know, the real problem with, with, uh, with, I think he's talking about, um, awesome is that it's become the antonym of sucks. And, um, you know, he's criticizing it because they're antonyms and they're used too loosely. Prior to, uh, working on this project, do you, did you have that sort of a inclination to get really into language and, and kind of I guess it's not quite etymology, but just sort of like the, you know, the, the more linguistic side of it to get really obsessed with like words and definitions and usage. Totally. Yeah. I mean, so there's two sides of it. One is, um, I was an undergrad at at UC Berkeley and, um, I wrote my, I wrote my honors thesis on, uh, sort of what we'd call the theory of meaning, sort of philosophical logic, philosophy of language stuff. And, um, and uh, I wrote it with, uh, Professor John McFarlane, who's just a real real pro at that stuff and used it to apply to grad school. And when I, when I started grad school, I thought that I would continue to work on that stuff. Um, but I sort of found quickly that I don't think maybe that's the right field for me. And I just, I don't know, it was a complicated mix of feelings, but, um, I wanted to explore other areas. Um, but I didn't stop loving that stuff. I still sort of study it and think about it and, uh, I just never write about it. Um, so, so yeah, that sort of um, link, link, philosophy of language, sort of theory of meaning side side of me is is there. But also, I think it's just part of like philosophy and my training in philosophy um, to pay close attention to uh, to the meanings of words and um, and and the sort of the structure that exists, um, the logical structure and conceptual structure that exists between uh, different words. And yeah, there's a lot of that in the book. I mean, there's a there's a whole taxonomy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Can you talk more about that process of kind of applying the philosophical 
method to a general population audience piece of piece of writing you know what that started how you started to approach that in a way that had to have been different from what you were trained to do I mean in a sense yeah Yeah, I mean um it's hard I mean the topic itself just kind of like you can't really write it in any other way right right (laughs) theory of awesomeness like it's got to be you know I can't bust out like uh, you know, some formal semantics for it. Like, I, it's something, it's like you want to talk to just normal people about that. Um, and then, I mean, the process of, of actually writing for the, for a general audience was partly just, you know, it's, I guess, I mean, I'm, I think of myself more as a writer in that, like, what I love about what I'm doing in philosophy in part is just the writing. Like I just love writing and um, I'm, you know, I, I have a lot, I have a lot of colleagues who really don't like to write and who are really great at thinking and teaching, but you know, the writing part of things just doesn't come fluidly or easily and it's a struggle. And um, for me, I just love the writing and, and sort of in line with that, like I'm always working on lots of different things. So I don't just write like, academic articles and the um the sort of public facing sort of fun to read engaging philosophy but you know i'm working on other things like um a novel and i've tried my hand at poetry but i you know not really good at that i don't think um but so i i sort of um i sort of yeah i just sort of loved this task of like speaking to a general audience um and found that like you know, you can, the writing can just flow in this really sort of nice way. It doesn't have to be structured by a logical argument, which is often what we're doing in philosophy papers. Um, although obviously there are parts of this book that are like that. Um, it can flow in a more sort of loose and entertaining way. And you can draw on, on jokes and, um, puns and various forms of wordplay and stuff. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, it was a mixture of me just like enjoying the task and sort of thinking about like, what would I want to read if I were, if I were like an, you know, sort of member of the general public, just kind of like picking up a philosophy book in a bookstore and a combination of that and just having really great readers on my side. Like my wife, Brett, read a bunch of this and gave me good advice. And my editor, Meg Leader at Penguin, just had really great things to say, and and she was so helpful in um, in making the work kind of flow better and telling me to dwell on certain things a lot longer. And so yeah, it was a combination of things. The the dwelling on things longer. Um, so are you usually when you're drafting more of a um you know, they say there are like people who have to go back in the second draft and then like cut a bunch of stuff or people who just like kind of sketched and then they have to fill it out. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm much of a, um, I, I don't write a lot, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of move slowly and, and sort of craft slowly from the ground up. Um, I see structure more clearly and I kind of fill in, I think. Um, yeah. And do I do you, a lot of organizing. I organize a lot. Oh, it's yeah? Big, yeah. I'm like, oh, this paragraph should be, you know, on page two, not on page 20. Um, 
they kind of do a lot of cut and paste. What do you do to like kind of visualize that? Is that just you looking at like a printout or, you know, sometimes I've been like really struck on stuck on structure of things and I've actually like printed it out and then cut out each individual paragraph and like just moved them around like physically. No, I love, I love doing that. Um, I totally have done that. Um, for this book, I think it was more, um, it was more just, I mean, like, you know, I would take showers <laughs> and realize, oh, geez, like this, uh, it's in the wrong place. They're like, oh, I, I should add this thought. Um, uh, yeah, so it wasn't, as, it wasn't as physical, but it was more, more just kind of like thinking about what I've been writing and going from there. Do you find, like, you know, the way that if you were writing fiction, you might write to kind of find the story? Like, do you have to write to find the theory? Oh yes, absolutely. That's how, that's a hundred percent how I work. Yeah. So, I, uh, so you're just kind of like doing a bunch of research and then when you feel like you've done enough research or maybe. Uh, I don't even, I wouldn't even say that. I yeah. just write. Okay. <laughs> I just write. Like I remember coming up with the concept of a social opening on an airplane. I was just writing. I was just like, um, do like I'm trying to describe some phenomenon and I just said social opening and it's like, Oh, that's, that's a nice alliteration to it. It's like kind of a nice phrase you kind of you kind of know what it means even if you just you, you, just by reading it you know mm-hmm. um yeah so i'm 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 a huge kind of i think through writing for sure um it's not not the only way i work but i definitely do a lot of that was there much of a like you know because there aren't a ton of philosophy books like this i think it's fair to say there are some general interest philosophy books i like just like there are some general interest academic books of of all stripes but no i mean this is a very specific genre that's like emerging um i would say that there's uh you know three including my book i mean maybe well so wait this book the assholes book yeah and then uh, on bullshit by harry frankfurt that was the one that kind of kicked things off i mean it was um you know, it's it's a theory of, of bullshit. Like, what is it to bullshit? That's a really interesting question because we know we we kind of know it when we see it. But like, when you think about it, it's not lying. It's not really truth telling. It's something else. And um, Frankfurt was, you know, uh, brilliant enough to sort of see that, like, yeah, th- this would actually make for a nice essay. And it's an essay he wrote in the '80s, but then just got printed as a book and then became a bestseller. Um, and then um, Aaron, Aaron James's book, Assholes a Theory, and his, his follow-up, Assholes a Theory of Donald Trump. I don't know if you've seen that. <laughs> no, I haven't, but that's amazing. Really fun. Um, and then, and then his new book, um, in a way, is is sort of it's in a way it parts with these genres insofar as these genre, this genre is about you know giving an analysis of a kind of evaluative term that's you know um, that is sort of salient um, in the culture, but that is not that needs some kind of philosophical illumination. Um, his new book is more, um, it's much like bigger picture, kind of like first order philosophy, um, but that engages with surf culture. So it has, has some affinities with these other projects, but, but yeah, I'd say it's a, it's an emerging genre that I'm really excited about because I think that, um, philosophers would do well to, uh, you know, take aim at the public as it were. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a little more than they do, and and there are efforts to um, to do this. Um, uh, you know, there, there's a growing sense that um, that that this should be done uh, more and praised more in 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 the academy. 
Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, or listened to the podcast Hi-Fi Nation. Yeah, yeah. We've listened to a few episodes of it. I think Barry Lamb does a really, he's a really great public facing philosopher. Yeah. Um, and he does, he's doing really good, good work with that. But, um, but yeah. Well, and it seems like all of a piece, um, you know, I, I haven't read the other books that you mentioned, but, but the way that you describe the surf book and, uh, and, and certainly this book and, and Barry Lamb, you know, it's understanding storytelling basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it, uh, I think being good, being good at writing this way, I think requires, um, I mean, this isn't true of the bullshit book, actually. The bullshit book or essay is really just, um, it's a very short, I mean, I think it's only 8,000 words or something. It's straightforwardly just like analytic philosophy, right? It's like no attempt to kind of tell a story or weave a narrative or, or you know, do much of that. Um, but I think to write a longer um, a longer book in, this, in the same vein, it requires a, a sensitivity to narrative you know to storytelling to sort of the kind of to the kinds of connections we we make when we when we watch or write a narrative um not necessarily clear and tight logical connections but you know narrative threads that kind of come in and come out and are structured in certain ways and sustain your attention and so on right right what about the actual process of writing it? Did you feel like this was a side project? Was this something that you could kind of like devote a work day to? I know you're, you teach um, as well, so you've obviously got that responsibility. But I don't know how, how much you are also like trying to publish papers and doing all, you know, all the million things at once that academics yeah. always have to do. I mean, you know, I'm an untenured assistant professor. Like, I have to do it all, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm publishing academic papers and um, doing, I'm, I'm kind of, um, this book in a way is, is extra, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to do the things that I would normally have to do just to get tenure at a, at a good institution. And then, um, and then, you know, on top of it, like I, I, I'm doing this book, but, um, and, and actually I'm, 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 I have other things in the works with respect to, um, these kinds of projects, but, um, I'm, I am like a motivational opportunist, so like whatever I, I will wake up on a Tuesday and like my internal motive, I'll like, you know, a doc will be, a document will be on my, on my computer and I'll just be looking at it and, you know, I'll get that feeling of like, yes, this is, this is great. Like I'm going to work on this. And, you know, that might be, that might be the awesome book. That might be, uh, that might be the article I have to work on. That might be my syllabus, you know, for, for the semester or something. And there's, there's all kinds of things that kind of bubble up to my motivational surface. And I just, I kind of, I kind of, uh, yeah, I, I pick the easy cherries as it were. <laughs> there's a, it's a, uh, Philip Roth quote. I can't remember where I read this now, but he said, uh, I go where the energy is. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly what I do. I mean, and you know, as a result, I mean, I have, I, I mean, I'm looking right now at, at, my, at my desktop. I have, probably a dozen documents opened right i mean and because there's always like such a you know more than a hand couple handfuls of things that i'm i'm kind of you know toying with as it were at any given time so so what is your ideal sort of way to write how or well i guess a, a better question is how do you end up writing where do you end up writing most of the time but but is how close to your ideal is it you know um I used to, I used to kind of, um, used to write like in cafes a lot. Um, 
especially when I was living in, in New York. Um, these days, though, I, I don't know. I'm kind of a no-bullshit writer. Like, I'll, I'll just, you know, my, my dream is a good night's sleep. I wake up with coffee. I have, you know, maybe half a cup of coffee, and I just go for it. And then I just ride that wave as long as I can. <laughs> I mean, it might be... It might be 20 minutes, it might be three hours, right? But, um, you know, and then eventually I'll, like, you know, eat something and take a shower and stuff. But, like, it's that, like, morning freshness with, like, fueled by coffee. That's that's my dream. That's what I – that's when I feel like I get the most done. And if, and, if I'm, and if I'm productive during that time, like, it's a good day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how much that colors the rest of your day. Yeah, totally. Because then you, you can revisit it in the afternoon and kind of be like – what did I, what did I do? What did that, you know, and sometimes, I mean, you look at what you did and you're like, oh my God, it's terrible. Like, and you notice it only a few hours later, but I don't know. There's something about being in that zone that like, um, I don't know. It's a very forgiving place for me in the morning. Well, and it sounds like you maybe are not as afflicted with the tendency that many writers, including myself are to overthink it. Like not even the writing, just like the idea of like the idea of writing even. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't overthink the idea of writing. I do overthink what I'm writing, but um, I, I think you know, I was saying I kind of do a lot of cut and paste and stuff. I mean, I, if I have anything on the page, you know, I have, I have marble to chip away at, right? I mean, I might chip away at the whole thing, but um, you know, I don't think of the first. I, I never think that the thing I'm writing in the moment is like. You know, if if I'm working on a blank page, it's never going to be like the final product. It's right. just I'm like sort of weaving the canvas there, and like then uh, you know, uh, it's the thing I can I can work with later. Um, so I'm happy if I even just like get something on the page that is not like completely terrible. At what point do you start revisiting stuff? Um, you know, you mentioned coming back to it in the afternoon and. And it's funny, I just had a, another writer on who said um, that her process was like, you know, a few hours in the morning, and then she takes a break in the afternoon, and then in kind of that second shift, she revisits what she did in the morning. And that see, that felt so close to me, you know what I mean? I was like, oh, no, four hours is not enough time for me to have distance from, oh, yeah. <laughs> from what I wrote in the morning. <laughs> yeah. You know, it really depends. I mean, it really depends on where my head is at. I mean, um, I just finished a draft of a philosophy article. And, um, uh, you know, it's sitting here next to me and I'm like, still not, still not down to like revisit it. (laughs) I finished probably uh, a week and a half ago. Um, but with other things that, um, maybe newer things or things I'm sort of, yeah, that are fresh and exciting in that way that new, fresh, exciting things can be, um, then, you know, I won't even stop. I, I, I won't like, I'll, I'll leave the computer, but I'll just, it'll be in my mind. I mean, it'll be with me sort of as I'm driving or, you know, as I said, like taking a shower or like, uh, you know, you know, working on stuff around the house or whatever. What was the process of pitching it and selling it? Like, did you have to write the full manuscript? Yeah. Um, I had what I considered a first draft, um, like, uh, gosh, just over two years ago. Is that right? Yes, just over two years ago. Um, and um, a friend 
of a friend of a friend like knew knew a knew a publisher and um who who was kind of interested in reading my book and um is Sarah Sarah Burstow at uh, Metropolitan Books and um she, she was wondering if she could read it and I was I was like you know lucky lucky me I like just I was just about to move to San Diego from the East Coast and I was like it was my goal to kind of finish a draft finish a draft before we left and I and I had so I sent it to her and um and she really liked it and um and you know gave me gave me some good advice um and introduced me to Mel Flashman who's now at um a literary agent now at Jenkel and Nesbitt um and uh, I chatted with Mel and she just had really good advice. She 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 loved it too, and she had good advice. And she was like, "Look, um, you know, you should publish something online, and you know, kind of as a, as a kind of road test of the ideas." And um, and so over that next year, um, what was it? I mean, I got I probably talked to Mel in September, and then you know, uh, I think by February I had a piece out. Um, I think. You know, it took a while to edit it for some reason. It was at, um, it's out at um, Eon, the online sort of science, technology, culture, philosophy uh, magazine. And um, and so by February that was out. And, and actually when that came out, it was like, um, I think I had two agents get in touch with me. I had like three uh, presses get in touch with me, like really good ones. People wondering, you know, are you writing a book? Uh, do you need an agent? <laughs> that was kind of like, you know, that affirmed, I think, to me and to Mel that like, okay, let's like, let's really pitch this book now. <laughs> like, um, and so we worked on the proposal for a little while, um, maybe a month and a half or so, um, and then pitched it. And uh, yeah, and we had a few, we had quite a few um, um, editors interested in, in working on it and um and, uh, you know, just really, really loved um, the people at Penguin. And do you want to talk at all about what you're working on now? I know you said that you had um, – I definitely want to talk about the novel too, but like while we're in the kind of philosophy sphere. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I have this sort of you know, straightforward philosophy project that I think, you know, is just going to take many, many more years to sort of, you know, uh, come out of my brain. <laughs> Somehow, um, but you're you're at peace with that. Yeah, that's fine. You know, I, I I always love working on it, and you know, it's just it's really kind of my dissertation times like five. I mean, it's just it's just sort of this thing that's sort of expanding. But um, but so I'm publishing papers on on that stuff, but in, in the academic venues. But um, but I'm also working on a kind of a kind of follow up to the awesome book, which is. Um, uh, about this idea that you only live once. So, you know, YOLO is this like, you know, this, this phrase that people uh, love to use um, as a hashtag or as a justification for adventurous or unusual or even risky behavior. Right. And it's sort of in line, you know, YOLO is new, but the idea that you only live once, like as a motivational idea um, is not, is not at all new. And, um, and it's in line with like other phrases like carpe diem or seize the day where the idea is that like somehow this like recognition of your finitude means that um, you should act a certain way. And um, whether that's, you know, adventurous or uh, unusual or risky. And um, the book's kind of about like 
our obsession with YOLO, right? Why, why do we make this connection between the thought that we only live once and living in any particular way? Um, you might think just the opposite, right? If you have only one life, you should preserve it. You should not take any risks, right? Mm. You should you know, regard it as this precious thing that could be harmed. And, um, and so that's as natural a thought, it seems, as the idea that your one and only life should be lived in a, in a more adventurous or, um, you know, outgoing way. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's about that stuff. And it's a bit of a meditation on like my YOLO past as a, as a former pro skater um, running around the world, you know, doing flips on rollerblades and stuff like that. Yeah, I love how that made it into the book as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could read the you could read the awesome book and have no idea that that um that I was that I that I had that past. But um, but if you know that I had that past, there's there's a couple of choice little moments that that you might smile at. So you are writing a novel with a talking beard that has been going on for at least like what four or five years? Oh yeah, um, probably six. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Maybe even longer. I don't know. I started writing it in grad school. Yeah, yeah. And and it kind of has, I mean, it has philosophical sort of yeah. ideas, right? Totally. So, like, um, it, it it's philosophical in a lot of ways. It's about, um, so the so the, the main characters are um, a sapient beard that is attached to Julian, who's kind of the, the, the main protagonist. And a poetic spirit that goes around, um, it's called the dumb emptiness and it goes around, um, whenever you can't, whenever you can't think of a word, you sort of lost your word, he causes that. Um, but he used to be the smart emptiness. So he used to go around causing poetic inspiration, but he got disillusioned and became the dumb emptiness, kind of more subversive spirit, um, but the dumb emptiness and the beard are both kind of in love with Julian. Um, the beard kind of represents, uh, you know, the philosophical, analytic, sort of rational sort of mode of life. And the dumb emptiness represents the kind of um, spirited, poetic, um, meddling, playful mode of life. And um, Julian's. Uh, got a kind of man crush on his friend Alex, who's a designer for Nerf toy guns. And the novel explores these different themes through this kind of weird love quadrangle <laughs> thing. Um, yeah, so it's it's super bizarre, but yeah, the beard is uh, the beard uh, the beard has a life of its own. Um, so there's, there's, you know, it's one of the characters that has its own sort of weird personality. Um, do you remember like what, like kind of the first kernel of that idea was? I think it's so much fun when stuff's been going on to kind of look back and be like, Oh weird. That's how that started. Oh man. Um, it was frustration with grad school. <laughs> it all comes back to don't go into academia. It really was. I mean, I was feeling really frustrated um, for reasons that I won't go into, but um, I just, I just didn't feel like my, I didn't feel, I didn't have words for this really, but it just didn't feel like my creative sort of energy and motivation was really being satisfied by what I was doing in grad school. And, and so I just needed something else. And I literally just sat down and started writing one day. You know, I just started and it was like, 
you know, this is the shit I came up with. And it was like, I remember like kind of waking up as I do, like in the morning with coffee. And that was the thing that I wanted to work on. That was probably true for like a whole year. And I would like work on it and go to the gym and have ideas and then come back and kind of write more. And so I've got a lot of it written, but I, um, but over the last probably three or four years, I have not been able to work on it with the kind of intensity that I really want to. Um, uh, I've, I really, I mean, I've made little, I've kind of, you know, there've been like a couple weeks here and there where I've been able to kind of get my head back into that really free and imaginative space to be able to work on it more. But, but those, those couple of weeks are few and far between. Um, it would be like a dream come true to just have like two years to like really finish this project. Um, but who knows if I'll, if I'll ever get there, hopefully. Um, I have been able to write, there's uh, another weird thing about this novel is that it has a, um, a kind of theme song. So I wrote, I wrote a theme song for it. Um, That's cool. Had you written music uh, before? Yeah. Yeah. I've written quite a bit of music. Oh, okay. Yeah. It used to be in a band and stuff, but, um, that's another thing that I just, you know, you can't do everything. So, um, but it's been fun to kind of like, uh, play around with the idea that like, why shouldn't a novel have like a kind of theme song or a kind of a song in it? That's awesome. These are the kinds of things that like, I, I'm I'm not making a direct comparison in any in any way, but like sometimes when I when I have an idea or something comes up and it feels like super weird, I try to imagine Lin Manuel Miranda first being like, "I'm going to write a hip hop <laughs> musical about Alexander Hamilton." <laughs> right. Yeah. And just being like, "Okay, well, there are no rules. Just go for it." But for that's sure. something I feel like I often need to remind myself. You don't seem to have that problem. Like I, I tend to have kind of rigid. Um, I often have to work around this rigidity that I think for for whatever reason I'm kind of inclined to to think that like, oh, I don't do X thing. But like you seem to be very fluid between a bunch of different projects, which is envious and awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think I learned from my skating days that like, um, you know, if something – you know, if something feels worthwhile and you're doing it and you, and you see how it connects to a certain expertise you have and a certain, you know, desire you have to communicate to people in a certain way or approach a certain subject matter in a certain way, I mean, just go for it. Like, I think there's a, throughout the various things I've done, there's a certain element of like, you know, yeah, not really caring a whole lot, like whether, or more just kind of trusting that people will find some weird shit I'm doing, like maybe interesting and worth reading or engaging with or, you know, um, whatever. What do you do for inspiration, but not in a sense of like, oh, I'm going to go out and find myself an idea, but like what in the world inspires you? It's, it's funny you ask that because um, Brett and I were just in LA last weekend and um, I felt so rejuvenated by being there um i really get i really get like inspired by cities i think it's people you know being around other people and 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 other people who are creatively engaged and and sort of you know inspired themselves you know i kind of feed off that um san diego is a wonderful beautiful place but it sort of lacks that cultural energy uh, that you get in in um you know so much of in new york and la and and other other good cities um that's a big thing another thing is weirdly maybe food like i just i mean I, you can probably relate to this i mean i just 
I don't know. There's something about food that like uh, thinking about it and cooking and sort of like bringing people together around it, like that just like fills my spirit and, um, and sort of like that feeds into my writing life. I think. What does creative satisfaction look like to you right now? Mm, um, having lots and lots of time uh, to do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> <laughs> the the end. That's everybody's answer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's pretty much it these days. You know, it's like it's harder and harder to just find the time to like get get really good creative work done. I mean, I think it's partly why. Like I haven't been working on the novel. Like it's it's really hard when, you know, you're moving to a new city or you're trying to buy a house or you're moving apartments or you're you just have to teach a lot, you know, <laughs> just like or you're traveling. Um those those spaces of just pure openness and, and just kind of anything goes, like, you know, they're rare. Yeah, yeah. And it's really this was last weekend it was really salient to me. Like I usually, but I work like 90 minutes, take a break for 20 minutes, come back for 90 minutes is kind of like the time frame that I work with. Um, so on a weekday morning, I do like one of those on the novel and then usually can't really afford to spend more time than that on the novel in a weekday. But then on the weekends I do more and it's so, it became so clear with the way that the work went last weekend, just like what you get from that extra sustained time and like an hour and a half is not nothing but you know just like you double it and it's like oh right this is a whole different thing because you're just really sunk down in it yeah it's it's all about you know at a certain point getting into that headspace where it's hard to describe in some ways but it's like you know the whole project is before your mind yeah Yeah. sure it's there on the page but it's also just in your head like the neurons are all connected you know like um, I got into that space when I was finishing my dissertation. I got in that space with, with, um, with on being awesome. And, uh, you know, I really would love to get back in that space with, um, with the novel, but we'll see. Visit us online at wmfapodcast.com to find links to some of the things we talked about today and to subscribe to the show and the WMFA newsletter, which includes episode notes and exclusive content. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Get in touch at hello at WMFAPodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at WMFAPodcast. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>